We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Jordan read our passage tonight, and as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, I have to tell you over the last few weeks as we've been preparing and working through this, these, these texts are texts that, that both tear our hearts apart in conviction and, and comfort us. And as, and as we work through it, you, you start to see why this is among the most commonly read, commonly quoted, uh, most familiar passages of Scripture in our whole Bible. But tonight's passage, we're, we're going to be looking at a text that I think a lot of people struggle with. What's the relationship of the law to us? What's the relationship of the law to Jesus? And so I hope at the end of our time tonight that you'll have a better understanding of, of, of what Jesus has to say about the nature of the law. If you have the opportunity to go to Israel, one of the things that you'll notice, there, there's some peculiar things you'll notice, but one of the most glaring that everyone experiences for the first time over is a Shabbat elevator. That on the Sabbath, uh, if you go in a hotel, if there's two elevators, one will be set in Shabbat mode where it stops at every level. And it works its way down on every level. So you pray you don't accidentally step on one of those elevators if you're on a high floor because it's going to go, it's going to stop, it's going to open, it's going to close. And these elevators do this every Sabbath. And the issue is the rabbis have determined that to press a button to activate an electronic circuit is work. And the, the Ten Commandments forbid the working on the Sabbath. And so these elevators are set up for, for Orthodox Jews, for, for sincere Jews to not have to do work on the Sabbath. I was reading a story of a pastor who went to Hebrew University and was meeting with one of the professors there, and he asked the professor to sign his autograph book. And he said, I can't do it, it's the Sabbath. And to put two words together has been deemed to be work. I can't, put my, you know, I can't sign your book. But they're in the middle of like a 30-minute hour-long meeting where this professor is continually going up and down a, a small ladder to pull tome, tome these big books to read so we can, we can work up persper, perspiration pulling the books out, but I can't sign my name. I read an article this week about a light switch that has been in, in function that they're working on an improvement that to activate that circuit, I can't turn a light switch on on the Sabbath but they've got a workaround. There's a light switch that activates as a, as a light passes through a cylinder to activate the light, but that light passes through at random intervals. And so what I can do is I can flip the switch to open up the circuit because the circuit doesn't open at that point, and then the next time the light goes through, it activates the circuit, and I didn't do any work. But they've determined that that's not enough. There's an updated version of that light socket that has a randomizer, and that circuit generates a, the, the, the computer generates a number between zero and 100, and it won't activate as long as that number is, if it's below 50. So it, it randomizes the randomization even more to get me farther away from work. And I'm, I'm not telling you these stories to mock the culture. I'm not I'm not telling you the stories to say what a ridiculous thing. I'm telling you the stories just to give you an idea of how meticulous and serious the rabbis are about following the law. So that when we read Jesus' words, we sort of get an idea of what the Pharisees, how they thought. 
how they processed, how seriously they took the law. So that when we read Jesus' words, we get a bit of an understanding of how serious he was and what he said about the law. You know, it's interesting. We kind of do the same things in our culture, right? E- even in our Christian subculture, we're, we're pretty quick to add on some layers to the way we act around each other. Uh, maybe we define what it means to be a good Christian, whatever by defining what you drink with your meals. Or we say, hey, we're only going to dress this way. And I'm not talking about the wisdom that comes with those things, but I'm talking about the way that we sometimes measure our faithfulness based on the small decisions we made, that we're all prone to a bit of legalism, to a bit of, of putting the law, the external law on so that we can conform to the culture around us. I think when we look at this text today, though, we're going to see that Jesus is concerned with something far different, Uh, that he's going to show us that the issue isn't the external things, not that they're not important, but that the issue, the real issue, is our heart. And and so as we look at Jesus's words, we're going to see that, to see that. Um, You know, in some places, our culture goes the other way, right? that we're going to let up the law. We're going to let up the externals. We've got policies being considered in our own city that we're going to decriminalize certain actions to minimize the offense. We haven't changed anything about the heart. You haven't changed anything about the offense. You just changed the external code. And so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to get down to the heart of the matter and say the issue here is what's going on in the inside. So look with me at the text here. He starts in verse 17. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, why would people think that Jesus was going to abolish the law and the prophets? You know, he had been active to this point, we, we, he came out of the temptation with Satan, and it, and it says he's going throughout the region of Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's the theme of our whole series here. And, and I think one of the things that's starting to get noticed is that Jesus is not as concerned with the externals as a lot of people standing around thinks he should be. But he says to him, hey, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, just so we're clear. I'm not here to undermine the Old Testament. He says, I come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Romans 10, 4 says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness of everyone who believes. That that Jesus basically says this. He says, though for the next couple years, you guys are gonna continue to accuse me of breaking the law, it's me who's the authority to actually interpret the law for you. I'm the one that you need to look to to understand the law. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. And so I I think if you're sitting in the audience that day, this statement gets your attention. Uh, It's Jesus is gonna show them moving forward that the law isn't simply a measure of how we're to behave but it's actually the standard of who we're actually supposed to be. Far from abolishing the law, Jesus is going to 
He's going to display the true meaning, and he's going to basically say, this is so much more than you can even imagine. He goes on in verse verse 18. He says, uh, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass through the law until all is accomplished. So our first big observation about Jesus in the law is that Jesus fully affirms the law of Moses. He doesn't back down from it. He doesn't erase it. I mean, I grew up in a, in a, in a rural Baptist church, and, and we, we didn't say this explicitly, but basically it was the idea that the Old Testament really doesn't matter. We're New Testament believers. New covenant believers was the word we were here. But basically the Old Testament, it's there. We're going to call it Bible, but that doesn't have anything to do with you. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I want to fully affirm the law of Moses. So much so that not one jot or tittle is going to pass away. That, that basically he takes the, a couple of the smallest Hebrew letters, the, the, the yod, which is like our apostrophe, and the other is a hook, which is, which is the difference between a dalit, which looks like this, and a resh that has this little bitty hook sticking out. You might think of it like this. It's like the dot of an I or a cross of a T, right? That, that that little bitty horizontal line is the difference between an I and a T. So he basically says, we're not gonna remove the least smallest bit you can imagine, we're not going to remove any of it. You know, the Pharisees had this idea, the, the rabbis had this idea that um, the Old Testament, God will never remove uh, the smallest. He, he will not remove even a yod. That, that when God changes Sarah's name, basically from Sarah to Sarah, you take the yod out. But then later when when Moses changes Joshua's name, he adds the yod back in. And so the Pharisees make the point, even that won't go away from the Old Testament. And it was always an illustrative point. And Jesus is alluding to that in a way that the audience would understand is, hey, none of this is gonna pass away. So if you think I came here to erase that, you're dead wrong. So he says, not one iota. And, and in a lot of ways, I think this sort of hits our point too, that, that I think we tend to look at the law uh, and we tend to say, it's not that big of a deal. What you did is not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. And I think Jesus is making it really clear. No, that's not the case at all. That this won't pass away until heaven and earth pass away. Basically, the law is eternal because it's based on the principles of God. It's based on his word. It's based on his design. It's based on his character. None of it will pass away. So, so Jesus affirms the law, but then he also demonstrates the eternality of the law. We come to verse 19. He says, Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
Third, Jesus lets us know that we're going to be judged based on our response to God's law. That if we do it and we teach it, we'll be the greatest in heaven. If we lessen it or lighten it or diminish it, then we'll be the least in the kingdom of heaven. The idea isn't here that we'll never break a commandment. The idea isn't that you and I are going to get it perfect. It's, it's more the idea that we don't take it seriously, that we don't do it, that we pick and choose. So on the one hand, Jesus is explaining that we're going to be judged according to his word, but also implicit in this is the idea that we can't change it. We can't pick and choose. That's what's happening in our culture today, that, that, that when you listen to people talk about God's word and make compromises with the culture, what they're doing basically is they're saying, I'm going to take this part of God's law and take it seriously. But this other thing that I don't like, I'm just going to say it's not that important. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Hey, if you lessen, if you lighten, if you step in for me to help my image, then we've got a problem. You'll be the least in heaven. My word stands. You don't get to edit it. That it can't be separated. No matter how much pressure your culture puts on you, no matter how much emotionally you may want to, to disagree, you don't have that prerogative. Nothing will pass away from my law. Because everybody says, you know what? It's wrong to murder. But then it comes to other things and we're like, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Jesus says here, he says, if you relax one of the least of these commandments or you teach others to do the same, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. We don't have, we don't have permission to do that. So really, in, in 18 and 19, we see Jesus' commitment to the law and Moses. We see his, 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 his demonstration that it's eternal. We see his explanation that we're to be judged by it. And then he explains to us that we can't pick and choose. But then we come to verse 20. He says, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are tough words. You know, he, he starts out in verse 17, do not think I've come to abolish. And here in 18, he says, for I tell you, verse 18, for truly I say to you, and here, for I tell you that Jesus is making authoritative statements. That's one of the things that's going to get him in trouble with the Pharisees, right? That, that he's not just coming along with a false humility that says, my opinion is. He says, I'm telling you, this is the way it is. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the point Jesus is making uh, and, and we're going to look next week as, you know, as, as this passage finishes, he's going to give us six examples from the law of, of how he interprets the law. And we're going to see next week how we apply these to our hearts. But the thing that he's saying here is that externals are not enough. 
You see, the Pharisees had set up the external system that you could measure yourself up with. And he's saying, hey, that's not the point. You can get all these externals perfect, but unless your righteousness exceeds that, you've got no place in the kingdom of heaven. And you say, what are we supposed to do then? Because I'm not even close to getting the externals right. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, for most of us, that's not even a, that's not even a pop dream. These are guys, like we said, that meticulously follow every single aspect of the law. And Jesus is saying, man, if I can't exceed them, I've got no hope. Now, you and I know the answer. You and I know about the blood of Christ and the gospel, and basically we repent and believe that we trust that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, that we don't have to be that we won't stand before God on the basis of our own righteousness. But I think this text is also bringing up the point that it's not just the external righteousness he's concerned with, it's the internal righteousness. It's not just what you're doing, it's why you're doing it. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceed these externals, you've got no hope. And, and this verse, basically with verse 16 that we looked at last week, in the same way, you're, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. These sort of form the basic idea of what the Sermon on the Mount is meant to do. That basically, Jesus is highlighting the law in such a way to show that it's the inside, it's the motivation, it's the heart that he's concerned with, and that our externals are actually meant to follow. That, that Jesus is not saying that our externals make us righteous. He's saying that, that it's beyond the externals. And so we have to ask the question, if we go back to verse 17, what does it mean when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it? I think there's two main ways that Jesus fulfills the law. First is by living a perfect life. He was perfectly obedient inside and out to the law. Therefore, we would say in his holy life, spotless and blameless, internally and externally, externally, I just made up a new word, write it down. Externally, Jesus fulfilled the law. But I think the second way he fulfills it is, is by retrieving the law's meaning, by helping us understand what is the meaning of the law. So like I said, as, as you and I sit here today, it can be really confusing, right? We go to these Old Testament texts and we read about the mixing of, of fabrics, the mixing of, of animals, and you know, I start to scratch my head and say, what does that have to do with me? And then I come to the and I come to Jesus' word and it says, uh, if you don't follow these commandments, if you relax them, you're least in the kingdom of heaven. And and it almost becomes a conundrum if you're intellectually honest. Because if Jesus fulfills the law, are we still under the law? Well, my pastor said we're not under the law, but under grace. Paul actually said that, not. But, but we're not under the law, but under grace. But what does it mean when Jesus says, 
if you relax the law, that you're least in the kingdom of heaven. I think Jesus later in Matthew, if you turn to Matthew 22, gives us some insight. Start in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So we know the motivation of the Pharisees is they want to embarrass Jesus. They want to demonstrate that he's going to be internally inconsistent. They're recognizing that he's getting a claim that he's being revered as a teacher, and he's teaching with authority. So they're playing, they're playing a game to stump him, to invalidate him. He said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments... Depend all the law and the prophets. So what's Jesus saying here? He's basically saying, if you live these two things out perfectly, you've been obedient to the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Simple enough, let's go do it. Think about it. Our culture, that, that's the way our culture works, right? That we throw that word love all over the place. In the current debates over moral issues, I'm hearing that all the time, that God is love. So he wouldn't judge my lifestyle choice. He made me this way. He loves me this way. We throw the word around, the word love around pretty loosely, So that it, would you agree that if we went down to the square and we asked 25 random passers-by, what does it mean to love your neighbor, we might get some pretty crazy answers. What does it mean to love your God? I doubt we would get 20 consistent answers. And so you scratch your head a second and you say, so is Jesus being subjective here? Is this just an idea that I need to be a loving person? And I, I want to throw affirmations to God and love him, and I want to love my neighbor by letting them do whatever they want. Is that love? That's how our culture defines love, basically, right? That I affirm you in whatever you want to do. That's how I love you. As long as it doesn't go too far out of bounds. But Jesus, this, this statement... He says, love God, love your neighbor. If you do these things, you've basically fulfilled all the law and the prophets. He didn't say you've basically done it. He said you have done it. But is this a subjective idea? I would contend that it's not. And I would contend that the, the way that we understand what it means to love God and to love our neighbor is we flip to our Old Testament. The Ten Commandments. How do the Ten Commandments break out? No other God before me. No idols. Uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. What do those four things sound like? Love God. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. What do those things sound like? 
love your neighbor. So the law actually gives us an objective measure of this idea of love God and love neighbor, right? But he doesn't stop there. At Sinai, God rolls out, I'm I'm sorry, at Sinai, the Ten Commandments, but then we move forward and God rolls out the Mosaic Code. And there's not an exact number. The, The traditional number, 613 of these rules throughout Exodus, Leviticus, uh, re-given in Deuteronomy that basically tell the, the Israelites how to live. And they're specific to so many situations. But I think one of the problems is when we read back into that, we read it um, concretely without recognizing this is God's word, this is how we apply this in an ancient Near East culture. And that's not to say these laws aren't applicable because they're cultural. It's meant to say the law points you to how you love God and the law points you to how you love your neighbor. The problem is by the time we come to the New Testament, the Pharisees have added a level to that. They call it their oral Torah, oral tradition basically. And what they did, it started out as a great idea a well-motivated idea, and basically the idea was how do we build a fence around the law so that those who don't live in our context, that don't live in, in Jerusalem, how do we help them understand how to apply the law? So you start adding some external rules to it. And most of these were passed down orally, and, and it was rules on top of rules that kept you away from actually violating the law, because if you could obey these external codes, then then you wouldn't violate the law, so it started out as a good idea. Later, these oral traditions were put into the Mishnah, and now we have records, the Mishnah and the Talmud, and all these external things that are written to help you understand. They were basically interpretations of the law. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, this is one of the big problems. It's not simply the good motivation that they built a fence around the law is that they started interpreting based on how well you kept those things. And you and I know part of the problem with rules is that we can keep them for a time, right? So now all of a sudden I'm keeping these external rules and I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm keeping this external code so I'm feeling like I'm doing a great job. But the problem is I've missed the whole point. Think about it this way. You, you got a kid and, and you're, in the, you're in the backyard and you tell that kid, hey, you know, it's, it's maybe a three-year-old kid and you're like, hey, don't jump in the pool because you can't swim and you might drown. Well, what does a good parent do? A good parent goes and builds a fence around that pool to keep the kid out. And then a few years later, the kid's got some friends over and the, and the kid says to the friends, hey, we're not allowed to stand on the pool deck. Why are you not allowed to stand on the pool deck? Well, because mom and dad built a fence around the pool, around the pool deck. And so it's wrong to step on the pool deck. Well, the parents ever say it's wrong to step on a pool deck? No, they didn't want the kid to drown in the pool, so they built a fence around it. But that kid, keeping the external code, stays outside the pool deck at all times. And now he's convinced himself that staying off the pool deck is how he's righteous. 
And so what the Pharisees basically did and the scribes is they added to the law and then they measured their righteousness based on their ability to keep these external rules. So they felt pretty good about themselves, but Jesus wasn't impressed. As a matter of fact, if you read through the Gospels, this is the group he piles on the most and rebukes the most, and it's almost always for this external set of rules that they're keeping because they miss the point. Love God, love your neighbors. It's expressed in the Ten Commandments. It's spelled out specifically in the 613 laws. And now the Pharisees have added a whole different level over this that they're holding over people. They've missed the point. Look at how Jesus deals with this. And and this is one of the big ideas we're going to get into next week, but look how Jesus deals with them back in chapter 15. Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. Where does the law talk about that? It doesn't. It's an idea for the priests that they've added on to everybody that they have to wash their hand. They have to wash their hands in a ceremonial way to eat. And so they're rebuking Jesus for not following the oral Torah, for not following the tradition. And Jesus says, why do you break the commandment of God for sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father and mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. What did Isaiah prophesy to you when he said, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. We learn from Mark in this same account that basically what the Pharisees have done is they've got this set of rules where if, if I've got money, then I dedicate my money and say that upon my death, all the money that I have goes to the temple, sort of a, tr- a temple trust. The trick is I can use all that money that I want And so what Jesus is saying here is is the law is clear. Honor your father and mother, which, which Jesus in the context is implying, take care of your parents. As they get old, take care of your parents. But the Pharisees have said, you know, I can't do that because I've donated all this money to the temple. What's God impressed by? Some external word saying I've donated my money to the temple or someone who actually cares for their parents the way the law asks them to? You hypocrites, he says. They've used this external law as an advantage. As if God would be pleased by that. Over and over, we're gonna see Jesus interacting with them over missing the whole point. 
you're doing these things with your actions, but you're, you know, Isaiah says it. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Guys, Jesus wants our hearts. He's concerned with the heart. There's a great example of this back in the book of Ruth. You remember in the, the story of Ruth, Naomi and uh, her husband go to the land with their sons. Their sons marry Moabite wives. The, the husband and the sons die, and Naomi's destitute. Chapter 2, we, we see Ruth come back with her, and she goes to work in a field of Boaz. Chapter 3, Boaz agrees to, to take care of her. Because the whole point of the story is that Naomi is destitute. She has no way to provide for herself, no way to carry on her husband's family name. And she's destitute. And in chapter 3, Boaz says, there's a nearer kinsman who can redeem you, but if he doesn't, I'm happy to do it. And so we... We get to the, the, the climax of the story in chapter 4. And Boaz goes to the city gate. He's really shrewd in going to the city gate. He goes to the city gate and, and it tells us that Mr. So-and-so, that's, that's literally what he's called in the Hebrew, Mr. So-and-so, the nearer kinsman, is there. And Boaz says to him, will you redeem Naomi's land? Now, if you're Mr. So-and-so, this is an advantageous proposition. That will you redeem the land basically means he gets to buy this land out of hock and he gets to use it as his own. And it's an expansion of his rights. And, and this comes out of Leviticus 25.25. And if you, you don't have to go there, I'll flip there for you. Leviticus 25.25, it says... If a brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then the nearest redeemer, the goel, the nearest kinsman, shall come and redeem what the brother has sold. And that's what we've basically got here is, is we've got an opportunity that's going to be advantageous for this guy to redeem the land so that Naomi is actually going to be taken care of. But then Boaz says something else. He says, oh, by the way, there's a widow that's attached to this land, Ruth. And immediately the guy recoils and he says, I'm out. Can't do it. And Boaz says, then I'll do it. And you, you're sort of scratching your head because I, there's, a, there's a word play in the Hebrew that's really funny because Mr. So-and-so says, I can't redeem her lest I lose my name. And the funny point is, what's his name? We never know. But what's interesting is when you go to Deuteronomy 25, because this is the, the point that Boaz is getting to, when we go to, to Deuteronomy 25, the rules for the Leverite marriage say, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife to, to carry on the, the family name. Now, what's interesting about this story is the setting. You see, Boaz has taken this guy to the city gate. The elders are there. So he's given him no wiggle room because had they been in a private meeting, I feel pretty confident that what Mr. So-and-so could have said is, 
I'll take the land, but go reread that law. I'm not her, bro- I'm not her husband's brother. You see, the letter of the law says brother, but Boaz understands the very nature of the law. What's the very nature of the law? It's the provision for the widow and the carrying out of the family name. And because Boaz is shrewd and he's got him at the city gate, there ain't nobody slimy enough to say, give me the land the widow can fend for herself. You see, Boaz understood, and this is a perfect application of the way the law was supposed to work, that it's the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. You know, we use that idea in our culture a lot. Usually when we say the spirit of the law, it's when we're going eight miles over the speed limit. We say it's the spirit of the law. We usually use spirit of the law as a loosener of the law, right? Because we're the ones that ultimately judge the spirit of the law. But ironically, when it comes to Jesus' treatment, especially as we're going to see next week, to say something is the spirit of the law is to say, no, 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 no. It's actually got to get into your heart. You see, Boaz understood the nature of Deuteronomy 25. He understood the nature of the plight that Naomi and Ruth were in, and he was willing to lay down his life for their sake because he understood the heart of God because the law pointed him toward that heart. It wasn't merely an external rule that was to be followed or not followed. What he understood was this points me to the heart of God, and the heart of God would decide to take care of these widows. The spirit of the law penetrates our heart. It, it, we typically diminish, but, but when we actually read, what we realize is if we understand the spirit of the law, it pushes us farther. So that the Old Testament laws actually serve for us as almost a case law. They show us how to apply more specifically what it means to love God and love your neighbor. That's, why, that's how our courts exist, right? A lot of times things happen that there's maybe not a specific law written about, but we've got to have judges help us understand in this case Here's how the law applies. And that's what Jesus is saying. I came to fulfill the law. I want your heart. And by the way, unless you're able to do it better than the Pharisees and the scribes, you got no hope. He's pointing to the reality that the law, it's an internal thing. So when Jesus describes the law and we understand the true meaning of the law to demonstrate our need to demonstrate our heart. We can't be content anymore with self-righteousness. I can't be content or proud if I can keep up my external appearances in front of you guys. That I won't be content to simply go to church to do religious exercises and to look smugly at my neighbors whose lives are a wreck. I've got no grounds for that. I can't simply be a Christian who's satisfied with pats on the back from other sinners. That Jesus is dead serious here. That he wants our hearts. He wants our holiness. Not measured by our externals 
but my measured by the condition of our heart. What Jesus says in this passage should wreck us. It should drive us to repentance, to a, an awareness that we sit before him broken. I can put on a good show, but man, standing before God in the white hot glow of holiness should drive me to repent. It should strip me of any feeling of self-justification of the great things that I've done or the great gifts that he's given me. It, it really should cause me every day to soberly assess the condition of my heart. You know, in counseling, we have such a tendency to say, it's okay. And the reality is, it's not okay. These things that we do, they grieve God. Now, as quickly as we say that, we point to the gospel and say, but let me tell you about the good news. No matter how bad of a thing you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, no matter how wrecked your heart is, no matter how prideful your heart is, no matter how deep your struggle with sin or addiction or fill in the blank is, the grace of God has appeared and that all you have to do is repent and confess. And that his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness becomes your righteousness. But don't make any mistake. It's not because you can keep the externals. The law was never intended to be something that we use to measure our external. It was always a means of thanking God it was always a means of glorifying God as a response to the faith that we have in us. The problem is so often we want to measure our externals and Jesus says, uh-uh. If you want to measure your externals, you better be prepared for a bar so high there's no way any human can jump it. Trust me. But as you're trusting me, realize that I will change your life. I will bring you to holiness and we will not water that down. Trust me, let me change you. That my obedience to the law is not for self-righteous, but as a thank you, it's to glorify him. And that that has to be all the way down to my heart. As we come back next week, we're gonna walk through these six examples that are gonna take us farther into just a picture of, of what Jesus is talking about as he illustrates sort of that penetration into our hearts. And so I hope and pray that this text will change you and affect you uh, the way it has, has convicted me. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word, we are so prone to justify our behavior, we're so prone to minimize who you are. And we're so prone to simply conform to external measures of faith to be a little bit better than our neighbor, but not so good that we're weird. Lord, I pray that that would no longer be our standard, that we would be measured by our heart towards you. Lord, help us all to conform to your image, to be conformed, that your spirit 
would enable us all to be conformed. And that, Lord, we would be a model, that our lives would be a thank you note to you, and that others might look and glorify you as a result of the work you've done. Thank you for our time together in your word, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.